The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. As you may know, John Calvin absolutely loved the Psalms. Set them to music. Calvin's Geneva Psalter was the, um, the bedrock of musical worship in his church in Geneva. He described the Psalter as the anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Love that description. The anatomy of all the parts of the soul in that they contain the full range of human emotion. Calvin writes, there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which, we, with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So we, as we think about Lenten spirituality and experience it together, are beginning a journey through uh, the Psalms, Psalms of the Honest Heart. We're going to be wrestling with disorientation, struggles with our past, doubt, urges for significance, or sometimes even to strike out in anger or to be rescued. How is it that the Psalms are God's word? Certainly they're in the Bible, and yet they seem to be less the words of God to us than the words of humans uh, to God. They are God's word to us in that God has given us the very words to train our hearts in right relationship to him. Words that teach us how to pray, to articulate who we are and who he is as we reach out to him, even in the midst of crisis. Notice that the Psalter offers us um, kind of a detachment from history. When you read the Psalms, it's hard to know exactly what is going on in the background. What, what's the nature of the specific crisis at hand or, or the celebration? I think there's a reason for that. I think it's as though these psalms are offering us a sort of algebraic equation with certain variables so that we can read into them our own experiences. So, so these blanks are meant to be useful to you and to me as we go through the, uh, the life and experience all of these emotions. So today, we're going to begin with the cry for guidance. Show me the way. And I'm going to read our text for us, but I would invite you to open up your Bible or the Pew Bible in front of you to Psalm 25. Psalm 25, you'll find on page 436 in the Pew Bible. And I'd invite you to uh, hold the word open through this message and also listen as I read these 22 verses for us. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me. Your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait 
all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who are they that fear the Lord? He will teach them the way that they should choose. They will abide in prosperity and their children shall possess the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me. And be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my life and deliver me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all its troubles. This is the word of the Lord. So if you've got somebody in your small group this week who wasn't able to make it to church, didn't hear this message, you can play this game with them. What you do is you you send them out of the room. And you say, Frank, we're going to uh, we're going to invent a story. And when you come back in the room, you're going to try to guess that story using only yes or no questions. And so Frank goes out of the room. But instead of agreeing on a story, what you agree in your group is that you're going to answer his questions only on the basis of whether the question ends with a consonant or a vowel. See, so if the question ends with a consonant, you're going to say no. But if Frank's question ends with a, a vowel, you're going to say yes, right? So you wait a little while, and then you invite Frank back into the room. And he comes back in, he looks around at your face, just trying to guess what the story might be, looking for clues. And he says, so, is your story a story about someone who's in the room? And you all say, no. Well, okay, so the story must be about someone who's not in the room. And you say, no. <laughs> and he thinks about it, he says, well, so is the story about someone who's not really a someone? And you say, yes. <laughs> and you're off to the races, and you're going to hear the best story you've ever heard in your life. It's a great party game. But it's a horrible way to live your life. 
And oftentimes, you and I are living our lives feeling like we don't get the plot line. Right? I mean, we know that Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's writing the story of our lives, writing the story of our faith. And yet, we look around at the circumstances that we bounce back and forth between, and we go, how could you possibly make sense of this thing? I mean, is there really a story? And if there is, I'm going to need some help. And so we cry out to God, show me the way. Give me your guidance, O Lord. And those of us who've read the Bible, or who at least own one, come to expect that the Bible should give us some guidance. And truly it does. In Psalm 23, we read that the Lord is my shepherd. He, he, he leads me beside still waters. He makes me to lie down in, in green pastures. He leads us. And, and in Psalm, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 3, uh, 5 and 6, we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. So the Bible does give us uh, guidance but it seems, though, that sometimes even that guidance is not enough for us. Sometimes we need more. We say, for example, Lord, I need more specificity. I've got two job opportunities right now. You know, one in Austin and one in Palo Alto. I'm trying to decide whether to do a study program here in town or go on summer deputation. And the Bible just doesn't seem to tell me. I can't find the word Austin anywhere in here. <laughs> it's just not specific enough sometimes. Or, if not specificity, we feel our grip sometimes in the midst of crisis, loosening on the authority of the Bible. Because all of the wisdom, all of its counsel, all of its guidance for the past, those things that I thought I knew were sh certain truths, seem to be eluding me at the moment. Show me your way. This is just a sort of crisis that a family 12 years ago found themselves in. And Gene Taylor, one of our elders, shared with me the story of the Connectly family in Wisconsin. Uh, tragically lost their seven-year-old daughter in a car accident. And uh, two of their sons were in the hospital, one recovering for a year and in the midst of that disorientation, they cried out for God's guidance. The father wrote, we are both wrestling with these issues, sometimes all night long, actually. And I've often thought of the last verse of Proverbs 1, which says, But he who listens to me, wisdom, shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of evil. That verse simply doesn't make sense to me the way it used to. Either the words are wrong or my understanding of them was wrong. His wife, Mary Banks, and I have entertained both possibilities. And we're aware that the skeptic would say that we can bend the Bible to say anything we needed to say to satisfy our feeble mind's demands for answers to the unknowable. Or it may be that, as I said in my comments at Anne's memorial service, that God, through Jesus, makes us an offer, forgiveness, 
and eternal life. To save us from sin and death. It's the ultimate offer regarding the ultimate issues we face. In the meantime, we live in the here and now with pain and suffering all around us. And we're terrifyingly vulnerable. This is the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 25. He cries out to the Lord to show him the way when his foot is caught in a trap, he says. It's interesting. You may know that uh, psalms come in certain standard formats. They, they tend to run formulaically from beginning to end. There are groupings of them. Many different kinds of there are psalms of of uh, royal psalms or wisdom psalms. There are laments. There are psalms of ascents. Different forms. Interestingly, this Psalm 25 is a kind of a hybrid or a mixed form. On the one hand, it's a wisdom psalm. If you look carefully at this in Hebrew, you'd begin to notice a pattern, and that is that each verse begins with the next successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters and there are 22 verses. This is a common form in the wisdom tradition. You may know Psalm 119 is the same way. In fact, they oftentimes will print the letters in the, in the English text, so you can see that. Psalm 119 is a psalm about uh, the wisdom that we get from God as we attend to his word and he guides our path. Path is a kind of a stock figure in wisdom literature, the path or the way or the road, derek in Hebrew. And so we see that here many times. It's repeated. So this is in the wisdom tradition, but it's also in another tradition. It's also what we would call an individual lament. And, And the lament is the form where we cry out to God and say, why is this happening to me? What are you doing? Rescue me. I'm drowning. Doesn't it seem ironic that God would put in the same psalm, both wisdom tradition, which seems to affirm here are the rules that should guide life towards success and a lament that say, oh, the rules are breaking down. I'm in trouble. And yet this is the cry that we have in Psalm 25, because sometimes we get to that place in life where the normal operation of things just doesn't seem to be functioning. And so in this text, I find three dispositions of the soul, three attitudes that as we pray this passage begin to work on our hearts. I'd like to discuss them together. The first disposition of the soul is prayer. We see this in verses one through three at the very beginning. The psalmist starts to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, a lot of us talk about prayers. Preachers like to talk about prayer. Ask preachers how much time they dedicate to prayer. It's one thing to talk about prayer. It's another thing to actually do it. Do we not all struggle with finding time in our day to to really be intentional about prayer? Well, this psalmist is not commending prayer to you and me. This psalmist is doing it. He's on his knees uh, praying. Uh, He's he's giving it time, in fact, Uh, He's going letter by letter through his prayer. He's setting it to music. He's clearly sharing it with people. The psalmist is giving it time. And there are two things that happen when we pray. First of all, uh, we open ourselves up to God. You see how honest this supplicant is with his God. In verse 7, he speaks of the sins of his youth and 
current transgressions. In verse 11, which I think is the heart of the whole psalm, he begs for pardon for his guilt. He's able to bring himself, warts and all, into the presence of God. I lift my soul to you, O Lord. Oftentimes, I confess that when I pray, I'm not lifting anything to God. I'm pulling down goods and services. I'm reaching up on the shelf and saying, do you have a quart of this? I need some of that, and I need a pound of this. And can I get it fairly quickly? (laughs) There's nothing wrong with asking God for exactly uh, what we need. But it's not enough. We also need to come before God with all that we are and offer ourselves to Him. And so does uh, this prayer. Sometimes when we pray, we think or we hope that we're pulling the dock towards us, as in a dinghy holding onto a rope, hand over hand, when in reality we're actually pulling the dinghy towards the dock. We are drawing ourselves closer and closer to God. The other thing that happens when we pray is that we open our circumstances to God. Not only do we open ourselves to God, but we open our circumstances to God. Do you know that God actually wants to work on this planet and through history because you prayed to him today? It's, it's almost impossible to imagine that that could be the case, that an all-knowing, all-powerful God would allow my prayers to make a difference in the universe. I mean, I think this thought is what sometimes, frankly, keeps me from praying. I think, well, gosh, you know everything. You're perfectly good. I know hardly anything. And I'm totally twisted. Why would you take me in your counsel as you run the universe? You know, what do I have to offer you? And I haven't found an answer to that question except simply that God has condescended to involve us in the dynamic of human history. He has. He has said pray. Oftentimes, as a pastor, I'm asked the question, well, George, which is it? Free will or predestination? Right? And you know what the answer is? Here, I can save you an email. It's yes. Yes! And don't ask me to tell you how it works either. I think the mystery is much like the mystery of the incarnation in which Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully God in the same person. Somehow the universe is affected by our human actions, the things that we do. We perceive that the world is changing because of our work, for example. But at the same time, somehow... God has allowed the universe to exist in such a way that our prayers also make a material difference on this planet and in history. God answers prayer. It's not just pulling ourselves closer into God. It's not just aligning our will with his. He's also aligning his will with ours. James 4.2 says, You have not because you ask not. Wow. God would have to tell Jeremiah three times in the book of Jeremiah, I need you to stop praying, Jeremiah. Because he was praying about something that God didn't want to do. And it made him very uncomfortable because God has bound himself to hear our prayers. They're powerful. Karl Barth, the great theologian, wrote this, God is not deaf. He listens. More than that, he acts. He does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. No, prayer exerts an influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. That is what the word answer 
means. The fact that God yields to man's petitions, changing his intentions in response to man's prayer, is not a sign of weakness. He himself, in the glory of his majesty and power, has so willed it. I don't know if you heard Barack Obama, our president's address at the National Prayer Breakfast uh, last month. Some of you were there, I know. But I read a transcript of it. And I was pleased to see that our city is on the map now, famous for prayer. And I'd like to keep it there. Listen to this. This is what the president said. It's a tradition that I'm told actually began, that is the National Prayer Breakfast, actually began many years ago in the city of Seattle. It was the height of the Great Depression, and most people found themselves out of work. Many fell into poverty. Some lost everything. The leaders of the community did all that they could for those who were suffering in their midst, and then they decided to do something more. They prayed. It didn't matter what party or religious affiliation to which they belonged. They simply gathered one morning as brothers and sisters to share a meal and talk with God. These breakfasts soon sprouted up throughout Seattle and quickly spread to cities and towns across America, eventually making their way to Washington, and I would add, around the world, and they continue to this day. We are a city that prays. Well, I want to invite you to respond to this psalm during these 40 days of Lent in a special way. Uh, the leadership of this church has decided we want to pray for 40 days, to be very intentional about that, from the youngest to the very oldest. And so we have prepared a program we're calling 40 Days of Prayer. There's really nothing to it. I love the cost of this program. It's free. And basically it's just you and me taking responsibility to care for one another, our city and the world, through prayer these 40 days. You're not going to find this card this week, but it'll be in the pew rack next week, and you can fill it out. What I want you to do, you can, it's live online right now. You can go online. You can fill out one of these cards. I hope that every single one of us in this room will be prayed for and will pray uh, up until Easter. So you fill out a card that will give us some kind of a prayer request. We ask no name other than your own to be on that card. And then uh, next Sunday, you'll have an opportunity to, to take half of the card off of somebody else's card with you and pray every day for 40 days until uh, Easter. And we're actually going to post these throughout the church so we can see how many of us are lifting each other up in prayer through this time of crisis. It doesn't matter whether you're losing your job or not. It doesn't matter if the prayer is about your job or not. We need to be praying for one another. Prayer is the first disposition of the soul. The second one is learning. We find it here in verses uh, 4 through 14. The psalmist asks God, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Sometimes we find that in the midst of crisis, disorientation, the very act of losing our way opens us up to learn. These are teachable moments. Because the plans that I had seemed to be falling away. The the calculations that I had done seem to be insufficient. I need to know more. The word uh, that's repeated, as I said before, is ways. What the, the psalmist wants to know more about are the ways of the Lord. So one would imagine a Palestinian traveler journeying through the wilderness, coming to successive forks in the road or the path, intersection after intersection. How many choices, Lord, we're faced with? Show me your ways. 
But notice this. He doesn't pray, show me my way. He says, show me your ways. How oftentimes we pray, Lord, is it Austin or Palo Alto? Austin or Palo Alto? What's my way? And I have to think that the Lord is saying, you know what? You make that decision. I'm more interested in who you are and how you relate to me. I want you to know my ways, the ways of God, and to be marked by those ways. In verse 12, we see an interesting thing. He will teach them the way that they should choose. The Hebrew says uh, more closely, he will teach him the way he chooses. That's not the way that the Lord chooses. That's the way that you and I, learners, are to choose. He wants us to make the choice, but to know enough about him to know how to make the choice that will draw us closer to him, to draw us into deeper relationship with him. In Psalm 32, 9, I love this verse. It says, Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. God says, I can direct you, you know, forcibly with a bit in your mouth and turn you this way or that way. But if you're a horseback rider, you know, a horse that knows you well knows how to be neck reined, knows how to go where you want it to go, reading much more subtle signals than that. So God says, I want you to integrate into who you are as a person, my values. The difference is like between a, sending a boy out on an errand and giving him 10 steps, do these 10 steps in order. And on the other hand, a boy who has gone out with his father to run this errand so many times before that he himself already knows how to face the multiplicity of options uh, and, and just choose what his father would, would choose. So the bad news is that this kind of knowledge of God, this kind of learning requires us to be constantly pressed into challenging situations with ambiguous outcomes. To cry out again and again, teach me your ways, O Lord. So we are to pray, we are to learn, and then finally, the final disposition of the soul we see in Psalm 25 is watchfulness, watching. Look at verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. We begin to see language here as it moves towards the conclusion of this psalm. It's very visual. I'm looking for, I'm watching for, I am attentive. How often you and I go into our prayer closet with a sense of real urgency and we say, Jesus, this is what you have to do and you have to do it really fast. Amen. And then we go out and we forget that we ever prayed that prayer, let alone to watch for his answer, to look for signs that he's interacting with what we have asked him to do. I think of the man who uh, was late for a meeting coming up to the office building. He just knew he was not going to make it on time if he had to but circle the block once. And so, as we often find ourselves doing, we resort to prayer. I don't know how you feel about praying for parking spaces, but raise your hand if you haven't actually done it ever, you know. <laughs> so you know how it goes, right? And he's praying, he's saying, God, oh, you know, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. You know, we make all these promises. Just please give me a parking space near the front door. And he opens his eyes. And sure enough, up there he sees a car just trying to pull out. He says, never mind, Jesus, I just found one. (laughs) Watchful. Watchfulness. 
my eyes are ever toward the Lord. If you read this psalm carefully, you'll notice a change in the audience. The psalmist addresses himself at the beginning and the end, and at, with one verse, 11, in the middle, to the Lord, directly speaking in prayer to the Lord. But then there are two sections on either side of that verse 11 in which he addresses people, I guess an audience, a congregation, or himself. And I think of it kind of like The Office, you know, or a reality TV show where there's kind of the, the real action of the, of the sitcom and then the characters step out for a second and they talk right to the, to the camera. They speak directly to you. There's an interaction between those two dialogues. And so that's what's happening in the psalm here. The psalmist is speaking directly to God. Here's the real action. But then he steps away for a moment to speak to us. And what he tells us in those moments away is what he has learned in his prayer. So you see, there's this kind of reciprocal interaction between my prayer and my learning. I pray and I learn because I'm watching, because I'm paying attention to how God is answering my prayers. In verses 5, 6, 7, and 10 here in the heart of the psalm, we see language that's repeated Steadfast love on the one hand and faithfulness or truth on the other hand. This is language that goes right back to the book of Exodus when God pronounces his name for Moses. Do you remember Moses on Mount Sinai? He says, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to see it with my eyes. And God says, here's how you'll see it. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and a cloud is going to descend over you. And from that cloud, you are going to hear me proclaim my name, my sentence name, the Lord. And so Exodus 34, 6 says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those two words, hesed and emet. Covenant love and faithfulness, grace and truth. And so here we have a picture of the psalmist who is constantly scanning the horizon saying, do you remember who you are, God? Do you remember your very name? It's a name that says to me, steadfast love and faithfulness. And now I'm looking, I'm looking. You know what happens when we remind God of who he is? We remember for ourselves and we remember to watch for it. So... This psalm inclines our hearts to pray, to learn, and to watch. All day long, I wait for you. At the end of the day, what we need is not an explanation, the question why. Nor is it an information, the question what. At the end of the day, what you and I receive in this psalm is an invitation the question, who? The guidance that we need is not a plan, but it's a person. That family in Wisconsin, the Connectly family, found that though they continued in grief and will until the day they stepped before Jesus Christ into eternity and know his embrace with their daughter, that they know that they will feel that pain. And yet, they also know that they have learned to recognize Jesus Christ with fresh eyes. 
One of their sons said this, Dad, I think our family is different now. We used to think we could have anything and do anything that we wanted. Now we're not as snooty as we used to be. And the father writes that our family has been less attached to the rewards of this world. We think about heaven all the time and long to be there. We, like Job and the Bible, are becoming more awed by how much greater God is than us. I feel closer to the pain and suffering of others than I used to. And although they continue to struggle with feelings of deep grief and anger, this man could write that holding on to the words and promises of Jesus has provided us with a solid foundation for our hope that cannot be shaken, even by the fulfillment of our worst personal and family nightmare. When we cry out to the Lord, show me the way, we find indeed that we are crying out to Jesus Christ and that he is crying with us. For Jesus is the one who walked the dusty paths of Palestine. Jesus is the one who taught us to pray as he gave us this petition, the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into the time of trial, but deliver us from evil. As we watch him through the pages of Scripture again and again, pulling aside to a lonely, solitary place to pray to his Father. Jesus is the one who is our teacher, who instructs us as our rabbi and constantly improves our discipleship as we follow him on that path. And Jesus is the one who watches with us through the darkest night as we join him in the Garden of Gethsemane, watching for the morning, watching for Easter. For Jesus will travel those paths to the cross, through the cross to the tomb, to Easter morning. He would rise exalted and sit at the right hand of God the Father, and he would send the Holy Spirit, who will guide us, who does guide us, who intercedes on our behalf with words beyond our own understanding. And so, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray this morning, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have swept us into the beauty of the inter-Trinitarian dialogue in this psalm as we have prayed the prayer of the Son to the Father and the power of the Spirit. So help us to continue to pray these prayers as we join together these 40 days before Easter, praying for one another in the city. Lord, who knows what you'll do as we pray. We call upon you to draw us closer to you and to draw you closer to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.